Welcome to the Darwinian Diva Podcast. I am Viviana Weeks Shackleford, an evolutionary psychologist and science advocate. Um, today we are so excited because we have Dr. Lisa Walling with us. And before we say hello to her, let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Lisa Welling is a tenured associate professor at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. Previously, Dr. Welling completed an honors thesis on the neurological components of the facial feature hierarchy in the psychology department at St. Thomas University in Canada. And this was funded by an undergraduate student research award. Next, she attended the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, where she completed the requirements for a master's in research and was then transferred to a, the PhD program. Her PhD, entitled Individual Differences in Face Preferences, was completed in 2008 under the supervision of Dr. Ben Jones in the Face Research Laboratory and was funded by the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada. Dr. Welling was then able to secure an Economic and Social Research Council one-year postdoctoral fellowship in the FACE Research Laboratory under the supervision of Drs. Ben Jones and Lisa DeBruin. Thereafter, she completed a three-year American Institute of Bisexuality-funded postdoctoral fellowship at the Pennsylvania State University with Dr. David Poots in collaboration with Dr. William Crowley at the University Medical School. Dr. Welling has presented her work at international conferences in various locations around the world, such as Japan, Russia, Italy, and France, and has given invited lectures at prestigious universities such as Harvard University, McMaster University, and University College of London. She joined the faculty at Oakland University in the autumn of 2012, was awarded the Oakland University New Investigator Research Excellence Award in 2015, the Oakland University Outstanding Graduate Mentor Award in 2018, and received tenure in 2017. In addition to having published more than 70 journal articles, she has produced two edited volumes, one entitled Evolutionary Perspectives on Social Psychology and uh, the Oxford Handbook of Evolutionary Psychology and Behavioral Endocrinology. She also currently serves on the editorial boards for the journals of the Journals of Archives of Sexual Behavior, Evolutionary Psychological Science, and Adaptive Human Behavior and Physiology, and is an Associate Editor for Evolutionary Psychology. She is particularly interested in how hormones affect different aspects of our behavior, including mate choice, mate preferences, and sexual behavior. Okay, so we have Dr. Lisa Welling with us. So welcome on the Darwinian Diva podcast. Thanks for being on here today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we are going to talk first about how it's been for you as an academic in, I hate saying quarantine, but it is sort of or was, um, and um, how has it impacted you? So just like a couple of episodes ago, I talked to Dr. Martha Escobar and we talked about how the stay-at-home order has affected her and um, how it's impacted her academic life. So uh, at least one of the things that she talked about in terms of recommendations or strategies for you know, how to cope and deal with academic duties and maintain those uh, you know, high standards is to having a calendar. <laughs> so, <laughs> making sure that you have everything you know, in order and it's just very helpful to do that. I know with me, I mean, I love having a calendar and all, um, but 
for myself, I find it difficult to, you know, to get to the calendar, to remember to put it on there. And then once I do put it on there, I still have to have a voice reminder, you know, to, to help me follow through with those kinds of things. And I still miss about 10 to 15% of things. So, so what, what can you add to that in terms of, um, you know, how this has impacted your academic life? I completely agree with Martha on the calendar aspect, 100%. Um, with what I've found is there's considerably more juggling. Um, there's no childcare, obviously. And um, I have a young son, so that's been very challenging. And that leads to more work in the evenings and weekends, um, obviously less time with my husband, and absolutely scheduling. Even things like this conversation, I had to make sure that my husband was available to kind of take over. Uh, so he meets with clients and um, is considered an essential employee. So um, we're having to schedule basically everything right down um, to you know, the, the minute, it's, if so or so it feels. Uh, so yeah, I'm absolutely on board with the scheduling aspect, having a calendar. We have a shared family calendar where both of our schedules are included. And um, I do get those little ping reminders on my phone 10 minutes before anything's supposed to happen to make sure that I keep on schedule. And that's really helped a lot with, uh, with us. So just a quick question then. So is one of you better than the other at maintaining the calendar? Like Todd oh, I'm is, totally better he's, at the he's calendar. The, okay, he's the master calendar <laughs> person. <laughs> I yeah, I'm really bad with with keeping, you know, keeping track of things and um I just feel like it's another duty. It's another thing that I have to do. It is. Um, it's definitely one other thing that kind of adds to it. I agree with that. But um for me, it's the best way to not let things fall by the wayside. Even things like editing student papers, I will put in my calendar and mark off specific time for that. And obviously there's going to be, if, if at all possible, some flexibility. Um, but when you flexibly move tasks to later in the evening, that means less focus time with the family. So there's definitely, like I said before, a juggling act. And yeah, I'm the queen of calendars. I love having <laughs> calendars and to-do lists, actually. I love both. And I have a, a variety of each of those things. Um, but absolutely, in my relationship, I'm certainly the one that's better with the calendar. That's hilarious. So you, so you mentioned, uh, you know, parenting and uh, the juggling act. And um, I mean, is can you think of one or two ways where it really has impacted you know, your parenting as well. You're both more present and less focused at the same time. So you're, because you're constantly trying to juggle, you do get more time with your children, which is great. Um, I'm loving the extra time with my son. Um, but every spare little minute you're trying to check your email and quickly tick off, you know, oh, I'll quickly send this reply, I'll quickly send, uh, review this IRB, you know, things like that, getting all those little tasks done as much as possible while you're, also um, dealing with childcare issues. So um, that juggling means you're around more often, but not necessarily as focused or engaged with your, with your children. Uh, and so that can be a bit of a, of a struggle. So um, that juggling, I know I keep using the word juggling, but that's really how it feels. Uh, I guess another way in, in which it's kind of impacted work is that um, of course all in-person work has stopped. So we're only collecting some data at the moment. Um, all of that we're collecting is online. We can't even run hormonal assays at the moment. So everything's been, been moved to these remote kind of um, techniques. <laughs> right. And so you're also managing graduate students as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so they can't go into campus or anything like that to collect data? No. So we've been having lab meetings completely remotely. We've been doing it via Google, Google Meet. And um, 
phone and things like that. So that's how I've been meeting with all my grad students since March. So your your son also, he probably loves this. He gets a, a lot of mommy time. <laughs> yeah. At first, I think it was a bit of an adjustment when he left daycare, when it closed. Um, so he did struggle with that at the start, I think. And I think that was just because of the change in routine. You know, routine is, he's two. So routine is just paramount for him. <laughs> and once, but once he kind of adjusted to me being home and him being home all the time, he's kind of loving it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there is that period of adjustment. I feel this, you know, very similar in that it, it took, I don't know, for me, about a month <laughs> to sort of adjust and like let go that, okay, well, I have no control of anything. Um, yeah. And, um, but then once that passed, there was, you know, there was like this, I don't know, controlled chaotic schedule that we had. Controlled chaos is a great way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> um. So did you have to do any sort of remote learning or anything like that? Did he have like a continuation of things that he was doing in daycare or no? A little bit, nothing too taxing. They yeah. had um, just some online activities oh, that okay. they would do every day. Uh, so um, just little things for things like fine motor development. And uh, if he, for him, it's mostly just play related activities, but like right. learning how to draw lines. Things that are developmentally appropriate, nothing too crazy. There was just um, a 10 a.m. and a 2 p.m. little short meeting, basically online. With the class? Um, it wasn't even, he wasn't actually online. It was just these little videos that they would post. So oh. they were technically optional, but they were encouraging us to do that since he's going to be starting preschool next year. They would That's like so him to cute. keep on top of things. <laughs> Little little Zoom meetings for toddlers. I know. <laughs> Academic starts early. <laughs> All right. So so we've talked a little bit about how things have impacted our lives, right? Just very broadly. So I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about things and that are, you know, floating around in our body that impact our psychology and our behavior. So one of your main areas of research focuses on hormones and relationships or interactions, um, you know, how they interact with relationships and attraction. Um, so this is kind of strange here. So, so if I walked up to you on the side of the road, maybe not on the side of the road, <laughs> but like if I had on a mask too, right, uh, at the grocery store, maybe at a park, and I, you know, we were talking about kids and talking about jobs, and I asked, okay, so what do you do and how is it related to behavioral endocrinology? What would you say? Well, so first, I guess I should talk about what behavioral endocrinology is. Uh, so behavioral endocrinology is the scientific study of how hormones impact behavior. And it's an interdisciplinary field. It has experts across various specialties, like psychology, obviously, but also anthropology, neurology, medicine, uh, zoology, and several others. So my work within this area mainly focuses on how steroid hormones impact human mating behavior and human preferences. Oh, okay. So, um, so then what about, um, like if you're thinking about your approach to studying endocrinology, um, you know, a lot of psychologists would traditionally characterize themselves as either, you know, cognitive psychologist, developmental. Um, how would you characterize your approach to this behavioral endocrinology? Well, when I investigate um, questions pertinent to be behavioral endocrinology, I do take um, an evolutionary perspective. So I'm interested in how hormones 
have um, evolved to be these proximate mechanisms to increase likelihood of certain behaviors occurring under um, specific circumstances. So why do they encourage certain behaviors in some situations and others, um, other behaviors under other circumstances, for example? So I've just been interested in how um, these chemical messengers really shape, because that's what hormones are. They're these tiny little chemical messengers that you know, float throughout our bodies and um, impact a variety of things. Obviously, people tend to think of biological aspects, things like the menstrual cycle uh, and pregnancy and so forth. But they also influence in a lot of ways um, how you feel, how um, you conduct yourself. And so that's really what I'm interested in looking at is how an evolutionary perspective um, ha can help explain those interactions between hormones and behavior. Okay, so you're using an evolutionary perspective. So what other um, approaches, like, so what, what's a good comparison? So an evolutionary perspective focuses on, um, you know, like ultimate sort of explanations, right? Um, and so you're looking at it from an evolutionary perspective, but how does other perspectives, you know, approach something like the study of hormones? Well, some take um, more bio, I mean, everything really, in my, from my perspective, everything really does boil down to, you know, proximate versus ultimate mechanisms. So most individuals for which I'm familiar anyway, um, tend to take on board at least elements of an evolutionary approach when um, making inferences about their data. Um, certainly there are individuals who study behavioral endocrinology who view themselves as social psychologists, for instance, and don't necessarily see the evolutionary perspective as paramount. But even then, when you continuously ask the why questions, like, well, this happens because of X, Y, Z, well, why because of X, Y, Z, well, why because of X, Y, Z, as you kind of delve back and peel back layers, eventually it comes down to um, an evolutionary explanation is what tends to make sense. At least that's my perspective on it. Um, but certainly there are those who take more of a social approach and there are people who take more of a strictly medical approach. Okay. So you alluded to like what, you know, people think when they hear the word hormone. So um, my thinking was that, you know, maybe people think about menstrual cycle or testosterone when you, you know, when they hear the word hormones. And um, I actually asked a few people, <laughs> what are the three, you know, things that first come to mind when I say the words hormones? And um, <clears throat> I've got things from testosterone, teenagers, sex, <laughs> and change. Most people think I study PMS. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's yeah. usually what I hear. Right. There's that. Um, but this one is really funny. This is changing, challenging, crying. So I thought oh, that dear. was a, that's <laughs> um, menstrual cycle. Yeah. And uh, mood swings. Um, but so clearly, right, uh, the world of hormones is enormous, I'm, um, you know, complex, and it starts in utero and takes off from there with peaks during puberty and menopause. I'm sure there's, you know, quite a few other peaks. Um, and clearly, there are many other areas of our lives where these hormones take place and, and play an important role. And also, it provides, you know, fruitful fruitful areas of research. So one area that I think is really interesting and, you know, is, you know, mate attraction relationships. Um, so just given your experience and your research, how do the role of hormones play a role in, um, you know, in mate attraction? 
Well, most work looking at mid-traction has um, primarily been done on females and mostly looking at three components of attraction. It tends to get broken down this way. So three components being attractivity, uh, proceptivity, and receptivity. So what does that mean? Um, attractivity is referring to the stimulus value of an individual for a given potential partner, so how attractive they are. And most research across uh, different uh, species finds that in females, this is generally enhanced by um, estrogens, in mammals at least. Proceptivity refers to the extent to which an individual initiates copulation. So it's their overt behavior that reflects underlying libido, so their sex drive. Um, research tends to find that this is facilitated again by estrogen. I'll sometimes say estrogen, sometimes I'll say estradiol. In humans, um, the dominant estrogen is estradiol, just FYI. Estrogen is technically a class for hormone. Uh, so in all female mammal study to date, as far as I'm aware, um, proceptivity, so overt behavior, reflecting their underlying sex drive, seems to be influenced at least in part by estrogens. Although testosterone seems to be important in both women and men's sexual motivation, particularly for women and humans. And then the third component what, that I haven't mentioned yet is um, receptivity. Um, receptivity is the extent of the response an individual has to sexual initiation from a potential partner. So how they respond to someone else trying to initiate sex with them. And again, estrogen seems to be important. This has been studied in um, women, uh, also rabbits and rhesus macaques. And in those three species, for example, um, they were all found that females were maximally sensitive to stimulation, like tactile stimulation um, and so forth, when their estrogen was higher. And you can see that from those components that um, proceptivity and receptivity certainly do overlap conceptually. So if you look at the animal literature, for example, oftentimes they'll use lordosis posture to indicate both of those things. So lordosis posture, you see it in cats, you see it in rats, it's when um, the female is sexually receptive and so she arches her back to give the male better access to her genitals. Uh, so hormones affect all three of these components for sure in a variety of species, but um, in females, estradiol seems to be particularly important. Uh, so in human females specifically, you see these, these estrus-like changes that occur around peak fertility, so around the time a woman ovulates in all three of these components. So for example, women are more attractive to males near peak fertility when they're around ovulation, um, which may be driven by increases in estrogens, or it could be something like their estrogen to progesterone ratio. Um, right before a woman ovulates, her estrogen is high compared to her progesterone, whereas after ovulation, her progesterone is high compared to her estrogen. And so that ratio may um, play an important role in women being attractive, more attractive to potential partners. Uh, women also seek out males more when they're maximally fertile, so near ovulation, and um, evidence suggests that might be modulated by women's testosterone level. And also women uh, report initiating sex more often. Uh, they have more sexual fantasies and they even report having um, better sexual experiences like more orgasms when um, they're near peak fertility versus other times. So researchers have found evidence, in other words, that estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, or a combination of these hormones um, may be responsible for um, mate attraction or at least may facilitate mate attraction um, in a variety of contexts. So I'm, I'm blown away by that. <laughs> you know, the fact that we, I mean, I, not that 
I guess what you sort of hinted at was something like, you know, an estrus type presentation by females. Um, and, and it's not just, you know, a physical presentation, but there's actually the hormonal changes that you can follow, right? Is that how the research is done where it's over time or something like that? A lot of the research tends to look at the menstrual cycle because mm -hmm. there are relatively predictable fluctuations in these three hormones across the menstrual cycle. So they may look at, um, they may test the same participants multiple times. Um, that's what's encouraged is using within subject design for sure. Okay. So they may look at women around the time when they're maximally fertile. They can use a variety of counting estimates to try and uh, figure out approximately when they would be ovulating. And they may look at the same women again after ovulation when they're in what's called the mid luteal phase. So that's just a term referring to the second phase of the menstrual cycle. So the menstrual cycle, first you have menstruation, um, and that's the start of what's called the follicular phase, which is so named because it's when the follicle is developing um, to be released at ovulation. And the follicular phase ends with ovulation occurring, and thereafter you have what's called the luteal phase, which ends with the start of the next menstruation. So usually you have researchers follow women over one or more menstrual cycles perhaps testing them once a week over several weeks, or sometimes they will purposely try and schedule them at specific times in the menstrual cycle. So you mentioned that uh, men find women, or at least the research suggests that men find women more attractive during their luteal phase. Where no, late follicular phase, oh, actually. late follicular phase. Okay. Yeah, late follicular is um, right before ovulation occurs. Okay. And so that's when sex is most likely to result in conception. Okay. All right. So what is it that men, or what does the research say, you know, that men see in why they think a woman is attractive during that time? Like what, what is it that they're seeing? Well, it's, um, it's a difficult question because the changes seem to be very subtle. Okay. So for example, um, some research suggests that there are changes in facial coloration across the menstrual cycle where there's more redness in the skin tone near peak fertility versus other times. But other research finds that those changes are too subtle to be consciously perceived by male partners. So it seems to be some kind of an unconscious mechanism, at least in some respects. Um, but men certainly do seem, according to uh, several studies, seem to find women more attractive in several modalities at peak fertility versus other times. So they find that women smell more attractive at that time. Um, they rate their faces as more attractive and they even rate their voices as sounding more attractive at peak fertility versus the same women tested at other points in their menstrual cycles. That's, that's really cool. And so do other women find other women attractive as well, you know, during peak fertility or do they, are there fluctuations? I mean, is it seen universally or, you know, like across sexes or no? You tend to see, um, some derogation of competitors at peak fertility when you're looking at women across their own menstrual cycles. So what okay. you tend to see, according to a few studies anyway, is that um, women tend to downplay the attractiveness of potential competitors, potential romantic rivals, so other women, when they're maximally fertile versus other times. Um, so you don't exactly see the same thing. Right, right, all right. Um, you do see among lesbian couples, however, that women who are near peak fertility will still initiate sex more often with their female partners. So it's not all about male attention. It's also about underlying female psychology. 
Right. Which might be motivated by hormones as well. Definitely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. So we're still talking about relationships and um, the role of hormones here. So one of the comments, or at least one of the um, things that pop into people's mind when I say hormones is sex. And so with that, what would you say are the primary roles of hormones during female orgasm? Ah, so uh, there's two hormones that are very important for women's sexual behavior and experience, and those are um, estradiol or estrogen and testosterone. So estrogen is important for female sexual function, and that includes things like sufficient vaginal lubrication and so forth. And it's also uh, correlated with reports of stronger sensations during orgasm in women. So it, it's definitely important for their sexual experiences in that regard. Uh, testosterone, on the other hand, is correlated with reports of relaxing orgasm experiences and seems to be critical for women's general sexual motivation, their sex drive. Um, both testosterone and sex drive are highest near ovulation. Low testosterone causes low sex drive. It's very well documented in the medical community. And um, testosterone treatment restores low sex drive. Also, testosterone, but not estrogen or progesterone, correlates with sexual desire, sexual thoughts, and anticipation of sex. So um, I guess in summary, estrogen seems to influence sensation and testosterone seems to influence motivation. But both are very important for female sexual experience and female orgasm. So would you say there is a... Um, a functional component. So, you know, you mentioned pleasure and sensation and so forth. Um, but would you say, I don't know, like from an evolutionary perspective or for that matter, any of the <laughs> psychological perspectives, is there any suggestion of a function of female, female orgasm outside of, you know, it feels great? Well, I mean, I think we shouldn't overlook the fact that female orgasm feels great. I think that in of itself serves a function. Right. It increases women's sexual desire. It increases their, their um, motivation to engage in sexual behavior, which is obviously very adaptive. Because if, you, if sex feels great and you want to do it, you're more likely to reproduce. And that you know, helps propagate your genetic um, line and so forth. So, yeah, I think uh, we shouldn't overlook that as in and of itself just a very important um, mechanism a very adaptive mechanism for increasing sexual behavior. But there's other evidence behind um, this idea of what is the function of female orgasm. Um, some people suggest that it may function in uh, pair bonding type of situations. So when you orgasm, one of the hormones that tends to kind of flood the system is oxytocin. Um, Sometimes people refer to oxytocin in, as kind of like a cute cuddle hormone or love hormone. Mm -hmm. And they refer to it as such because it does increase when you're around those that you, that you love, that you're affectionate towards, um, and also increases at, like I said, orgasm, as well as childbirth and, and breastfeeding. Um, so oxytocin is very important for that and um, seems to be related to um, pair bonding experiences, not just in humans, but also in other in uh, monogamous species like prairie voles and things like that. Um, so if your oxytocin goes up at orgasm, you may, it may increase your drive to um, bond with your partner, both the woman and for the male. And another potential adaptive explanation for the function of female orgasm is some evidence suggests it actually helps with conception. It actually helps draw the sperm further up into the female reproductive tract and um, direct the sperm, potentially anyway, according to some research, 
towards the fallopian tube of the ovary that will be releasing an egg in that particular cycle. So yeah, it seems to, to also serve that function. Okay, so you mentioned that uh, breastfeeding and oxytocin um, and that sort of feel-good cuddle, um, cuddle component. So how is oxytocin related to breastfeeding? So oxytocin is um, responsible for what's called the milk letdown reflex. So in breastfeeding, you've got two primary hormones that are responsible. You've got prolactin. Um, prolactin is so named because, you know, prolactational. Right. And um, prolactin is necessary for breast milk development. But um, when the infant suckles on the breast, it actually um, triggers the release of oxytocin, which then triggers the milk letdown reflex, which is how you actually feed the infant. So that's how um, oxytocin is involved there. Um, so when you were talking earlier about... Um you know, the different hormones being activated during like orgasm, for example, it made me think about, you know, what comes first, <laughs> you know, is it the hormones or is it, you know, you know, just seeing someone and it just popped back into my mind because we were talking about breastfeeding and I, you know, when women hear that who are lactating and they hear like a baby's cry or they just see their child you know, sometimes that activates the, the lactation. So, so maybe come back to that, what comes first kind of thing. Well, uh, it's certainly a lot of um, research points to this bi-directional relationship. So it can be either way. You can have hormones impacting behavior, but you can also have behavior impacting hormones. Um, no question. So the examples that you gave are good examples of that. Seeing your child um, can cause a flood of oxytocin and that can accidentally trigger the milk letdown reflex, particularly earlier on when you're still kind of learning to breastfeed, um, early after you've given birth. Um, same thing with hearing another infant cry, even if it's not your own, that can also trigger the milk letdown reflex. Uh, so yeah, behavior can cause hormonal changes and hormonal changes can influence behavior. So talking about um, hormones influencing behavior, you know, we often think about contraception and, you know, hormone therapy. Uh, so in birth as a form of birth control or easing symptoms of menopause. I mean, there may be underlying, underlying medical issues for why that might, might be the case as mm. well. Um, so, of course, like with any medication, you know, there are side effects and so forth of, you know, doing these kinds of things. But um, so one, you know, aspect or I guess one area of concern uh, in study is looking at the, you know, medical sort of uh, side effects of these things. But um, can you speak to what might be some uh, psychological side effects of, you know, for taking either hormonal birth control or um, for, you know, perimenopausal and menopausal women, you know, hormone therapy? Uh, well, there are several psychological side effects that have been documented, but I would like to say first that I'm very pro-hormonal contraceptives in general. Um, although, you know, they, well, they have given women an unprecedented level of control over their own reproductive choices, and I don't think that should be overlooked. Right. Uh, so that has led to greater inclusion in the workplace and other areas of society. But that said, I do think it does women a disservice uh, not to investigate all of the potential side effects of these synthetic hormones. And that includes the psychological and emotional side effects of hormonal contraceptives. So it is only through thorough investigation that we can allow women to make fully informed decisions about their reproductive health 
and develop new treatments that deal with any of these potential. Uh, so most work on hormonal contraceptives focuses on the physical side effects, and those have been well documented for some time. So things like the treatment of dysfunctional uterine bleeding, um, the elimination of functional ovarian cysts, so it can have some very good, some very positive side effects, reduced cramping, reduced acne. Um, there can also be some negative side effects. Sleep disruption is sometimes reported or increased risk of blood clots and stroke, of course. But like the physical side effects, um, more recent research has found both positive and negative psychological impacts of hormonal contraceptive use. Contraceptive users report less variability in their mood across the cycle. And for those who have um, you know, perimenopausal syndrome related issues, that can be quite a benefit. They also, um, some individuals report improved perception of their quality of life. This seems to particularly be among those using low dose hormonal contraceptives. Mm -hmm. um, but on the flip side, you can also see report of negative effects on mood and well-being, such as um, an increase in borderline personality disorder symptoms among those who are diagnosed with the disorder. Uh, so hormonal contraceptive users also report higher rates of depression compared to non-users. Um, hormonal contraceptive users report more interest in short-term sexual encounters, but paradoxically have lower on average sex drives compared to non-users. Uh, and there's also evidence that hormonal contraceptives are related to higher jealousy um, towards a partner and their behavior, um, increased effective response to hypothetical infidelity scenarios, and even higher mate guarding. So you mm -hmm. are more likely to keep on closer tabs on your partner when using hormonal contraceptives versus um, women who are not using hormonal contraceptives. So research in this area is ongoing and a, a lot certainly remains to be investigated. So do you think, I, I don't know if there's research on this, but do you think that, um, you know, so with those heightened, um, you know, psychological effects, so more jealousy or increased symptoms of personality disorders, um, do you think that it's just exacerbated or is, so I guess I'm asking, is there research sort of, you know, pre and post <laughs> taking birth control and, you know, to what extent is it just personality or is it, you know, actually the hormones that are causing the, the, the uptick in, in um, those psychological effects? I think that's a really good question because there is a lot more research that needs to be done, especially longitudinal research. There's very little that's currently out there looking at uh, longitudinal, the longitudinal influence of um, you know hormonal contraceptive initiation versus cessation and how that impacts behavior. Uh, certainly, um, with the for example the borderline personality disorder study that I mentioned, um, they were investigating that within women who were diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and found an increase in symptoms. Uh, so the severity of the symptoms increased. So it's kind of exasperating the pre-existing issue in that particular case. Um, otherwise, I mean, there's been some research longitudinally looking at um, the potential impact on um, mate choice, for instance, but not very much. Only a, a couple, of, a handful of studies so far have looked at that. Uh, and we definitely do need more. So it is possible, absolutely, that there are um, confounds present. It's certainly possible that women who choose to use hormonal contraceptives differ in some substantial or, or you know, important ways for these particular questions from women who choose not to use hormonal contraceptives. So for instance, um, there are some noted differences in personality 
So um, I'll make sure I get this in the right direction. There's definitely a difference in extroversion, for instance. Um, I remember reading the study, but I can't remember the direction. I think it was that women who use hormonal contraceptives on average were less extroverted than women who mm-hmm. don't use hormonal contraceptives, but I could be mistaken on that. Um, that's off the top of my head. Yeah. So certainly, anyway, I just use that as an example. Um, it's certainly possible that um, there are differences there, pre-existing differences. And most commonly in the research, what you do see is a comparison across groups. So we do need more longitudinal research. Yeah. Um, the one thing <clears throat> that just made me think of as well is, you know, so teenage, you know, females who go on birth control, whether it's for sex <laughs> or for cramping and things like that, um, know you know the importance of looking at the sort of you know um side effects whether it's physiological side effects of starting you know really early um just speaking to how important it is yeah to to investigate all of the the negative side effects whether they're psychological or physiological because you know um i mean there may be developmental sort of um, consequences because as a, a younger teenager their brain is still developing, right? Mm-hmm. That's so, true. Yeah. I'm not aware of any research that suggests there's any kind of long-term developmental impacts oh. of hormonal contraceptives um, on teenagers. So yeah. the, the general consensus is that they're by and large safe to use, um, okay. particularly now. The first hormonal contraceptive that was ever introduced is called, was called Enovid, and it's no longer on the market because it was such a high dose of synthetic oh estrogen. Um, it was associated with a drastic increase in likelihood of dying from a blood clot related um, diagnosis. So they've since kind of tapered that down considerably. (laughs) And generally the consensus is that unless you have pre-existing conditions such as clotting disorders, um, that for the most part, hormonal contraceptives are considered safe to use, um, even at relatively young ages. In fact, um, most often when they're prescribed, particularly when they're prescribed to teenagers, it's because of menstrual related issues. So usually, um, you know, pain during menstruation, so severe cramping. Um, And sometimes the um, changes in negative affect across the cycle. Uh, So not all women experience changes in mood across the cycle, but uh, among some women who have perimenstrual-related issues, sometimes those mood changes, the irritability can be quite severe. And so women who, so there are those positive side effects, like I mentioned, women who then go on hormonal contraceptives to regulate their cycles report an increase in feelings of well-being um, because they no longer feel those those um, strong um, increases in irritability across the cycle. So what do you think are like two implications for your specific research on hormones? Two implications. Um, well, humans tend one. to think... <laughs> no. I'll just, I'll just kind of like... <laughs> Spitball here for a second, I guess. <laughs> uh, humans, I guess, we, we tend to think of ourselves as kind of above or outside the animal kingdom, mm-hmm. um, which of course is not true. It's not controversial, for instance, to talk about how hormones impact behavior in, say, dogs, cats, or even chimpanzees, despite them being our closest relatives. Uh, but people tend to assume that humans are different for some reason. Uh, And one thing I like about behavioral technology is that it provides a bit of a reality check in that regard by showing how we are all biopsychosocial beings. We're also influenced by our own biology in these ways. So hormones aren't just pregnancy or PMS, but rather they can impact a variety of social behaviors. 
Right. So, sorry. I uh, so does evolutionary uh, an evolutionary psychological approach um, make that easier for you to think about behavioral endocrinology? So, what I'm getting at here is, you know, if we think about um, just a so social, you know, psychological perspective, um, you know, does it um, because an evolutionary perspective, you know, cuts across you know, comparatively, you know, uh, across disciplines, does it make it easier for you to, um, you know, sort of approach this, uh, this topic? Um, it, it, like I said before, I see evolutionary psychology from my own research as kind of an explanatory framework, right? the yeah. way I make sense of, of the data. Um, so it helps approach questions because of, you know, pre-existing theories, um, that come up in light of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary perspectives. They're very, you know, very testable potential um, theories and hypotheses that you can then move forward with. Uh, so I guess it helps me in, in that regard, how, um, how I interpret things and how I move forward with making further hypotheses. And uh, I do think, I like the, that you pointed out the um, comparative work, because I think that's really important. A lot of the stuff I've been talking about, they have actually found in non-human primates as well. Uh, including some of the stuff I was mentioning about um, hormonal contraceptives and, you know, changes in attractive ratings and things of that nature. Uh, they, they do also tend to see those same sorts of responses in other non-human primates, be they chimpanzees, the gorillas, they've looked at, you know, crab-eating macaques, um, rhesus macaques, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's really fascinating that we do see that commonality across um, our species, but also across other primate species. All right. So, do you have any fun upcoming research <laughs> that you're looking forward to in your lab? I'm looking forward to this being over, so we can really get back <laughs> to the lab. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, we do have a lot going on right now, despite the stay-at-home order. Yeah. Uh, one series of projects that I'm excited about involves how the relative dose of different progestins found in hormonal contraceptives predicts changes in partner-related behavior. Uh, so, we're also um, and we're looking into these questions both within and between subjects, so stay tuned on that. But um, we're also looking at a variety of in-person studies once the stay-at-home order is lifted and everyone's safe to resume research. Or we're looking at things like how hormones predict um, online dating behavior, oh, for okay. example, and things like that. But yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, well, Dr. Lisa Welling, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. I know it's a crazy time. Thank you for time. having me. It's been fun. And if our viewers would like to reach out to you or if they have any uh, further questions, um, how should they reach out to you? Well, you can reach me by email. My email is welling at oakland.edu. So that's W-E-L-L-I-N-G at oakland.edu. Uh, you can get copies of my publications and other information on my lab at um, my website, which is wellingresearchlab.com. So Welling Research Lab is all one word, of course. And you can also follow us on Facebook, so the Welling Research Lab, or on Twitter, the handle for the lab, Lab Welling. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you. A big thank you to you guys for listening today. Please continue to send in your questions and comments. We really like receiving them. And remember, be curious, stay engaged, and join us next time on the Darwinian Diva podcast.